right. Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Happy Halloween, y'all. This is being recorded on October 31st, 2021. Um, spooky. Hello to you, Alex. What did you dress up as? Anything? Do you ever dress up? And if I do dress up, I go all out, but we actually, so we were planning on going to a Halloween party yesterday. It completely fell apart two days before. So we didn't have enough time to figure out new plans or anything like that. So, but my original idea and what we were trying to get done was going to be Ricky Bobby and Cal Naughton from Talladega Nights, me and my wife. That would have been pretty good. That would have been hysterical. We already have the wigs and everything because we were stepbrothers at one point in time. We did the whole sweater vest thing from the picture. That was us one year in Cairo school. And I'm like, oh, we got the wigs. We could actually pull this off. It's the same actors. <laughs> That'd have been good. Yeah. How about you? What'd you dress up as? Um, we went to a party last night and I was a, well, it was a video game themed um, party, which could have been really cool. I was really excited for it. But we ended up just kind of haphazardly throwing our outfits together because we didn't have time or plan very well. Mario um, and Peach. We could have done that. I was a big buck hunter pro. So I got a little Nerf gun and I had a bunch of Safari stuff on and did some like camo face paint. And my wife, Mary, was Pikachu. Nice. It doesn't really match, but it did not match at all, but (laughs) it worked. It worked and we had fun. So yeah, yet to have any trick-or-treaters yet. So you you guys probably heard my wife screaming in front of my house right there. That was our first trick-or-treater. I'm pretty sure what that that's what that was. So that was why is cool. your wife screaming at the trick or treaters? That's a, that's a Lisa thing. Are you trying to scare them? I don't know. No, I think she's excited. That's the first time because we lived in that over 70 community or over 65 mm-hmm. community for the last year and a half. And then now we're here. We actually have people that will trick or treat. So it's cool because we actually get to give candy to trick or treaters in our first house. Cool. I'm sure she's excited. <laughs> well, I guess ah. it's the roll with Halloween. What's some of the scariest training you've ever seen, Austin? What's some of the scariest things you've experienced while training oh, at the area a lot that of, you see? Oh, like on Instagram? There's a lot of shit. Oh, maybe in person. Let's go <laughs> in person. What's the scariest shit you've ever seen? The scariest thing I ever did was we at Gomez Wrestling Academy, we had to do 100 push-ups in a row. I was 12 years old. The class was anywhere between 9-year-olds and 15-year-olds. And if anybody dropped or did a bad form push-up, we would start at zero. We did that seven and a half times. <laughs> we got all the way up to 770 push-ups at the end of practice after an hour and a half practice. Well, that's just, that's, that's a, impossible. That's just a compounding variable, right? Exactly. It doesn't make much that, sense. It was, I vividly remember it where I'm like, this doesn't seem like it's actually doing anything. I'm just tired. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but. I'm sure you got some mental toughness out of it. Of course. Of course. What about you? What's some scary training you've um, seen? One of the scariest things that we did was when we were at UW Lacrosse. I can't rem- I don't think you were there anymore, Austin, because I was a captain. But we came in one Thursday, and Thursday was always the day that our grade reports were due. Right? Yes. So we had to go around to our uh, professors. You had to introduce yourself, talk to professors, getting them sign off on your grade, whatever. And we had 28 guys on roster. And 14 of us turned them in and 14 did not. So we were shooting at 50% there. Um, coach was not happy about that. I think rightfully so, right? That's that's a honest thing to keep kids accountable on. And so 
we did 14 minutes straight of burpees and it was at the coaches or at, at the captain's pace. So, um, we probably did, I don't know, maybe 20, 25, 30 burpees a minute. And it was just constant chop your feet burpees for 14 minutes. If you don't think that's hard, go try 14 minutes straight of burpees. I'm even like running for 14 minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was hard to get through. Oh, I can see, I can see Dave's face right now. You guys gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. I mean, I don't know. That's a rightful thing to be upset about. And then one of the other ones, but I could just, I, I can visualize him screaming at you. One of the other ones that we did, we had a granddad's bluff next to our uh, collegiate, I guess, facilities or university. And we had to carry a 45 pound plate, which is about, it was what, five and a half, six miles. I remember doing that one. That was a Chase Steiners group. Oh yeah. That, that was, was what it was. Stupid. Five and a half, six miles up a bluff and <laughs> how much elevation, like 800 feet. Elevation? Yeah. It's obscene. Like yeah. So it was running uphill for like 45 minutes and you have to carry a 45 pound plate. And that was like the only workout of the day. I was like, carry this plate up the bluff and back and we're done. Well, that was preseason. I remember yeah, it was, was in rough. a preseason group and that was the one workout we did, but it ended up taking, I think it took us like an hour and a half. Well, yeah, dude, running six miles period is hard. I was so exhausted. Oh my God. Yeah. That was that was one of the worst ones. I remember, I remember some people stopped for a beer at the Alpine too. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been like the office, like uh, hail a cab, like halfway in. <laughs> yeah, just hey, we're good here. Oh shit, that'd be funny. But uh, and remember those grind matches, the preseason grind matches. Oh, dude, the fucking tens and fifteens and twenty. I think the worst I ever did was a twenty-five minute grind match. That was the I hated that. Oh man, it made smart. me tougher. Don't get me wrong. You had to be real tougher. smart about picking your partner for those. Yes, 100. percent It was it was me and Casey Einerson, or it was <laughs> me and like Aaron Sweeney. Those were the two best partners for me because we could just or Mason. Me and Mason was always fun. I'm trying to think, I did one with Zach Tooley, who is a beast. Yeah, that sounds like a stupid idea. And I did one with uh, Alistair Keys. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm big rotc guy and just oh, yeah. just a, a behemoth of a man yeah and like i mean and he had some good wrestling skills but he was mostly just a physical monster and it was like it was just wrestling a bear for 20 minutes he was so strong and he's so smart isn't he like Those a doctor scary. in the military now uh, i don't know maybe sure Alistair, if you listen shout us out send us a message doubt he is he listens but that'd be cool yeah um yeah man what about on the coaching end of things what's some of the scariest things that you've you've learned from and experienced in your young career or that you've seen other coaches do um i mean the scariest thing i've seen in person while coaching was somebody post their arm and a complete elbow dislocation in a wrestling practice and i drove him to the hospital and stayed with him while he got his elbow reset so that was pretty that was pretty sketch because you could that's the first time like I I've worked sidelines before and I've seen some pretty bad stuff sidelines, but I haven't seen eyes go into shock before he saw his elbow just dangling there and his, he just went into pure shock and you can see it in his eye that he, he was just like staring off into space. He was like staring through you trying not to concentrate on that. So that was pretty fucked. I know that's not where you were going with that. That's but... no, that's completely fine. That, that's, that's very scary on our Halloween episode. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's also a good point for, I guess, to get out there to the sport coaches out there that listen is if, if an athlete does get hurt like that, I feel like, and I'm not saying any of the other coaches didn't step up because I know Santino would have went with him to the hospital, but 
that that's one of those things that I feel like it means a lot to the athlete to go with them to the emergency room if you can, or to send a buddy with them mm-hmm. or send stuff across because you shouldn't be trying to treat that in the gym. Like if you do anything other than splint that, which even that, if you don't know how to splint, please don't try to splint an elbow or please mm-hmm. don't sp- try to splint anything at all, a forearm, if you will, like send it out just have them try to hold the weight and try to brace themselves against their body weight. Don't try to splint it yourself and move the elbow in position. Um, but going back to the main point, I feel like if an athlete does get hurt, you should be the one to go with them. You're the person overseeing the practice. You should be the one to go with them to that place to show that you actually care about that athlete. Yeah. I, I see your point and I totally agree, but it gets hard if like you're the only person coaching the session, right? Like, you just cancel sure. the session and peace. And that's, that's what I thought about midway through when I said it. And I'm like, that's why, or provide a buddy, right. Yeah. And provide somebody like you should have, I mean, every team has it where there's, there's regular people, there's participants, there's people that are on the upper echelon of skill. There's the captains. Sometimes those correlate. Then you have your assistant coaches slash head coaches, yeah. right. Somebody along those chains of head coach to assistant coach to captain should accompany that person out of the building and to where they need to go. That should be something that builds. We talked the last podcast on building a team from the ground up, trying to build a culture and trying to, trying to coach to a team aspect, not just to an individual aspect. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that also to to that point, that's what helps show athletes that you care about them Mm -hmm. when everybody steps up and tries to make sure that they're okay before they go back to what they're doing. That's something that I feel like needs to happen more because in an individual sport, sometimes people feel very, very individualized. And well, if you can give them a way to not feel like that, that's going to bring that camaraderie together. And I think that's one thing that strength and conditioning coaches um, utilize to create a, a huge relationship with the person, right? It's like when I see somebody, I'm not only concerned, you know, honestly, I'm way less concerned with their like playing time or their slot on the depth chart or like where they stand and what promotion and their record or they're coming off a loss, whatever. Like that's, that's not my primary thought when I'm seeing somebody, when I see somebody, I'm talking to them about, Hey, how's your elbow feel? I remember last time it wasn't going well. How's your body feeling today? What's going on? And it's like, I'm actually checking in with them interpersonally with, whereas a lot of times the skill coach that the water kind of gets muddy because like, I don't want coach to think I'm a pussy. I don't want him to put me down the depth chart. I don't want him to think, about, you know, maybe he needs to pull me out of this fight or whatever. So I'm not going to tell him, which is not the greatest culture to have, but that's where strength and conditioning coaches, I think, have a little leg up to create that interpersonal relationship because we can talk just about like, Hey, how are you doing physically? How are you doing as a person? How can, without the added pressure of like, am I getting play time this week? Or am I, you know, am I in shape for my fight? Like things like that. For sure. And that's honestly, that's one of my favorite parts about my job is that I do get to have a little bit more one-on-one time. And I do get to ask those athletes about their day and about their week and about how their body's feeling. Mm-hmm. And because it allows you to build that trust. And that's the cool part about being in a, even though it's important, a quote unquote supplementary role in the athletes camp is because more typically than not, you're actually going to be the one that's interacting with the athlete for prolonged periods of time versus head coaches and skill coaches. They have 30 athletes on the team, it's an hour and a half practice. They're only getting X, Y, and Z amount of time, probably minimal one-on-one versus 
if I'm one-on-one with you in a healthcare setting, guess what? I get to talk to you for as long as that entire sequence or that appointment goes. And if it's an hour long appointment, like I have, then I get to talk to you for an hour and actually get in-depth insight into how you're feeling, how your body's feeling, how your brain's feeling, what you feel about the fight coming up. And then as long as I have something that I already have everything signed with all the coaches and with all the athletes saying, as long as it pertains to what you're coming in to see me, can I tell this to your sport coaches? That's how I get around HIPAA because they agree with me. As long as I will ask them every single time, can I tell your coach this? Cause I think it'll help. And for the most part it does. And that's, I guess that's another point that you can't break your athletes trust because that's the other, that's the second side of the sword is you spend more time with you that with the athlete. The reason why as a, or as a strength coach, the athlete's going to tell you a little bit more is probably because they have a little bit, not more trust, but they have trust in you and you don't go to the skill practice every single day. You're not making the overall skill-based decisions. You're not going to hold them out of practice. So it's, it's cool that you get that trust. And I think it's an extremely valuable part of the entire training paradigm, but make sure that if you are going to tell the, the skill coaches, make sure the athletes on board with telling the skill coaches first, especially if you're in a healthcare setting. Well, that a hundred percent. And I think it's important too, that you straight up with the athlete as well. Like, but just like you said, like tell them that you're going to go tell the coach, but also like if an athlete's underperforming, fucking tell that to their face. Not, it doesn't have to be in a, like, I don't know, derogatory way or whatever, but like, you know, how do you think I'm doing coach? It's like, well, here's the rub. Like you, you have to be able to stand up and have those conversations with your athletes. And I think that will, you know, it's the tough love aspect of like, I'm going to be hard on you now because I actually care versus like, you could just blow it off and say, you're doing great, man. This is fantastic. I want you to be confident, blah, blah, blah. Like, but if you're bullshitting the athlete, you're just bullshitting period. Like, I feel like that's some of the harder conversations to have with your athletes is if like, you are underperforming something needs to change, you know, like we're, we're four weeks out and I haven't seen, like, I've seen maybe one good round of sparring. Like what is going uh, on? Dude, I've actually, I'm, I'm so bad at that conversation. It's hard. I've been man. trying to, I've been trying to find a way to get better at it, but I just, I, because I'm so part of my shtick and part of what I believe in is that you want to be, you're the positive force. There's so many negative forces in the camp. You should be the positive force because of that. I feel like I don't have that conversation enough Yeah. because like I've had athletes that we should have been, we should have been doing three times a week and they've showed up four times a camp and, right. and I'm, and they, they look fine in sparring and I have to like try to, I, cause I use the Mario Kart principle that we've talked about before in every aspect. I'm like, I don't want to get in that athlete's head during camp. I want to try to lift them up. I want to try to make them focus on the high points, not the low points. And, and I agree the- with that, but like putting, like putting your foot down and almost like calling them out to an extent, like that can be a very positive experience too, even though it's like a, a quote unquote negative interaction, it's a positive message is and I fucking care about you. And this, I care about your performance in this fight. It's not just going to be blase or whatever, you know, for sure. And that's, I feel like that's the middle ground that it has to be that, me. And then the reason why I mentioned this is I know a lot of people struggle with this. It's a hard conversation to, to be able to be honest with an athlete and try to try to frame it in a way that's not going to get in their head and don't, don't look down upon them. Don't be like, Hey, you're actually, you're training like a piece of shit. Like you look like dog shit, but frame it in a way that, Hey, we got to change something up. I just think this is going to be the most positive way to benefit you moving forward, but I need extra effort out of you. Something like along those lines. That's what I've come to when I talk about this conversation. Yeah. And I mean, I think I've been through that as a coach too. Like it's, it's 
sending two different messages, right? Like I've been around coaches that like are point blank, just assholes to their athletes. Oh, yeah. like, and, and we all know those coaches, right? Some of those coaches are like the most loved and respected coaches for their athletes because they have that underlying assumption of, I love you. I'm doing this the best for you. Even though I'm being a dick right now, this is to further your athletic potential because I believe in you. Right. For sure. And you've been on the other end too, where or you've seen the other end where coaches don't give a fuck or they're super lighthearted with their athletes. And they don't like that because they're not bought in and they're not actually committed to the results for the athlete. So there's, I think the, the differentiation there is like, you can be a dick and then you don't have the perception of caring and um, really genuinely wanting the best for your athletes. Then you're just a dick. Then you just got some, something to figure out in your own life as a coach or you're a dick and you have that underlying up some assumption of love and of, I want you to do better with your life, with your athletic skill set, with your potential. And then you can quote unquote, get away with it, but quote unquote, also then you can, it's a more understood perspective from the athlete, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it comes down to being, being, I guess, understanding in the situation. Yeah. It's what you have to make the athlete a understand on their end, they need to understand that you care about them before you can then be a dick. But yeah. then you have to also understand that athlete circumstance. And I'm probably not going to have that conversation two weeks away from their fight or in front of a bunch of teammates. Yes. No. <laughs> so problem. Oh, the stories time. I've, I've got about that. Yeah. No. Right. But I have a good actual story of a coach not understanding the context. And then that, that tripping up my trust in him is when I was an athlete and I was wrestling and it was just in the middle of practice, whatever. And, um, I bit my lip. Right. And it, I don't know, it sucked. It was really bloody and it was, uh, I don't know, a scary incident, I suppose. And like, I'm leaning over a trash bin, talking to the ATs, like spitting blood out my mouth is like one of the more like gory instances of my wrestling career or whatever. And like, I don't know, like it was weird it was kind of hurting, but I like just knew something was actually wrong. And like the athletic trainer looked at my lip and like, there was, I had bitten a hole through my lip. Like it wasn't just like, I cut my lip. It was like a straight up hole to the outside of my face, um, through my lip. And so the athletic trainer is like, you need to go st- get that stitched up. Like, blah, blah, blah. going to go to ER. You're not practicing the rest of the time, whatever. And, uh, my coach, who I think was actually a genuinely like caring guy walked out, didn't quite understand the context. Like uh, this athletic trainer just told me I had a hole and I need to go get stitched, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Oh, you got a cut lip. Looks like can't eat any chips tonight. That sucks. And walked away. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> it was just, and again, not like, not like out of the blue dickish or whatever, but like, he just didn't understand the context. And like, that was like, Oh, well, I guess that's all he cares, you know, or that's what he <laughs> thinks I'm doing, you know? Right. And uh, so it's interesting, not understanding the context as a coach. And sometimes you don't understand, but that's when you got to be held accountable for sure. And that's, I mean, we, we preach it all the time that goes down to getting to know the athlete as a person too, because like, that's, that's a second piece of this entire puzzle is I'm not, I, I can't treat me the way a perfect example is I can't treat me as an athlete, the way I would treat my brother as an athlete. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like if you, if you know, my family, like, you know, that I'm, I, I want to be told that I kind of suck. Like that's, that's what I do best with. I'm so, I thrive off of being told that I suck. That's the best part of my day. And then Jackson is more hey, of like, Austin, he, you suck. I suck. Thanks dude. I'm going to be better today. Be better at podcasts. Fuck you. That's please. why. Come on. <laughs> 
But, and then with Jackson, he's more of the, he needs the positive reinforcement. He needs somebody that's going to try to lift him up, not put him down. And if you treat both of those people the same way in that exact same instance that you just had, if Jackson got told that about the chip thing, he'd have fucking flipped. He, he would have been pissed. Hmm. But you or me, well, I don't even know about you, but me, I, dude, I'd fucking laugh. I would laugh. Yeah. I would have laughed right at Dave if he told me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't really done an honest self-assessment. Like, I don't like getting yelled at, but I guess that's how I was coached growing up. But I think I just, more than anything, I just need time. Like, I feel like a lot of coaches, like, want you to acquire the skill now. Get it now. Perform. Yeah. Do better. You know, it's like, it's like. I need reps. Like I've come to understand myself um, in skill acquisition enough that I know I just need a lot of reps and then I can be good at something. Like I, I have the consistency, the mental fortitude, whatever you want to like get good at something. Very rarely am I just automatically good at something though. Like, I don't know. That's a skill set that I just haven't seen in myself, but as far as how I get coached, I don't know. I guess I'm a fan of more like um, technical knowledge rather than like motivation because I mean, Austin can attest to this, like, my head's are never in the wrong place. Like I'm always like, I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to do the right yeah, thing. I'm not yeah. just fucking this off or I'm not whatever, which I guess kind of leads into one of my coaching points is one thing that I've seen most recently. And like, and just like through queuing different high schoolers, different wrestlers, different uh, MMA guys, like there's three reasons I'm going to cue somebody. Right. And my, my biggest three are like, you're performing the exercise wrong and you don't know you're performing the exercise wrong. That's like, that's me every time, right? Like, like I'm genuinely trying to do my best at this and I just don't know that I'm fucking it up. Like that's the easiest one to correct for sure. Um, Then there's kind of the second one is like, I'm not trying and I'm not doing it right. And that's the hardest one to correct is like, yes, a person doesn't give a shit and they're just going through the motions or whatever. Um, And so that one is a a different conversation that you're going to have to either pull some motivational queuing out of your bag or just get to know the athlete and understand that their context, maybe like, maybe they've just had a really shitty day and they just need to get through this. Right. So then that's where you have to understand before you kind of attack the technical cue or attack the specific um, problem with the movement. And I guess the third one in, in my um, kind of exercise library or my queuing library is that I don't know what I'm doing at all. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. And so that's a different type of. Yeah, it's not direction. even that they don't care. It's that they legitimately don't. They're just off in la la land picking fucking daisies. Right. So, yeah. So there's like the, I know how to do it, but I'm just doing it wrong. And I don't know that I'm doing it wrong. There's, I don't care. And then there's like, I genuinely don't know anything. I've never seen anything like a landmine jerk before. What the fuck? Yeah. Dude, that's how this is a hot take. So I'm sorry if it pisses people off, but that's that's how i feel about trying to teach jujitsu kids how to wrestle (laughs) like i i have this saying i tell everybody else when they ask me about wrestling coach like being a wrestling coach at an mma gym and i legitimately have a thought that it's so much easier to teach a wrestler how to do jujitsu than it is to teach a jujitsu kid like a wrestling kid how to do jujitsu versus a jujitsu kid how to learn wrestling amen because it's such a different mindset like the, the cool thing about wrestling to me, I think we've done a whole podcast on this, but I'm going to repeat myself is the mental toughness and the, and the ability to kind of key in on small tasks. Mm-hmm. That's what wrestling has done so well. And it gets you good at doing boring shit because you know how boring it is to hit a single leg over and over and over and over again. It's, it's extremely boring and not even finish it just entrances. Oh, we're going to shot entrance on a single leg. And it's allowed me to get 
across the, or I guess past that threshold of, oh, I'm bored. I'm done with this now. I'm going to put the toy away when I'm bored. I have to pass through that. And I need to be focused on the task, no matter what, even if it's boring, it's That's really, my, I'm going to stop you there. That's my number good. one pet peeve at jujitsu class. Fucking people get shown a technique. They try it two or three times and they talk about the technique. So for fucking 30 minutes, yes, you need to drill it. You would learn it. If you drilled it, don't talk about what if, or this context or that, like you can ask those, what ifs once you can actually hit the move, drill the move. That- that's why the best coaches in the world say the exact same cliche is drillers make killers. Yeah. Like it's, I'm all for trying to create pathways. I'm all for trying to understand tactics, but I feel like jujitsu in the most part, and this isn't a knock on jujitsu, but it attracts a smarter crowd for most of the combat sports. It attracts a more intelligent crowd for the most part compared to wrestling. But because of that, that culture is a little bit more paralysis by analysis than it is just doing. The cool thing that wrestling has taught me is I am extremely like, I was about to say I'm extremely doable. That's not where I'm going with this. (laughs) (laughs) I am extremely good at picking a choice. If there are multiple choices in front of me, I could, I mean, my wedding venue, I walked into one place. I'm like, this is the place I don't need to go anywhere else. Like, Lisa, my wife's wedding ring, like all, like all, a lot of big choices in my life. I'm just like, oh, that uh, you go into UW lacrosse, like going to the college that I met Alex at. Literally, I went up there, I committed on the way home. And wrestling has taught me how to be that decisive. Mm-hmm. Wrestling is the reason because you got to be able to make a split second decision. If somebody shoots a single leg, am I going to cut the corner? Or am I going to sprawl? Am I going to be fishing for a leg or am I going to be going after a front headlock? Like you need to know in that instinct or right in that instant. And there's not enough time to think what if you just yeah, have to do. It, yeah. If you think about that, what if, or you consider the multiple choice, then you're, you're boned, right? You, you gotta be able exactly. to just react. And that's where drilling comes full circle, right? Like, but I've been in this position a million times. Well, but then when we get to jujitsu, it's a little bit slower paced. It's not as fast of a pace of sport, right? For the most part, if they're playing a a guard game, then you're going to be stuck there and you're looking for micro adjustments. I think that's the term that people talk about, like the mini micro adjustments. But for the most part, you have a little bit more time to think and try to understand what's going on. In my mind, I don't know if that is actually extremely advantageous for other combat sports. While I think being able to think on the fly is extremely important when you have too many options in front of you. And most people, most people aren't decisive. Most people have paralysis by analysis. And if you have 15 different options right there and you get to think about those options, well, then you're probably going to miss all 15 because you didn't pick one. Yeah, man. I, I don't know. I was rolling jujitsu just this morning and I was, it was, uh, I was going against a typical jujitsu player. So he's playing off his back, trying to get into a guard and I'm kind of on my feet trying to pass his legs in some capacity. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't know what to do. Like truck him. I can do Lift this. His I legs can do that. I can do him. so many different things. Put him in a donkey guard. And it's like, sometimes I even, I just like bait somebody. He's like, here's my back. You can have my back. Cause let's just go. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do from a jujitsu standpoint. So let's just get this show moving so that we can scramble and I can use my wrestling. Right. Like that's, oh, yeah. so that, I don't know. I feel as though that's the difference. Like the pacing is way different, just like you said, but also like the, I don't know. It, wrestling is more straightforward, but it's not, if that makes sense. It is. It's just a lot more mon- Like I said, at the beginning mundane tasks. It's a lot of just X, Y, and Z. There's not as many options. Like there's in 
to finish a Kimura, every single like master or every single like high level black belt has a different way to finish their Kimura. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. For the most part, a single leg is a single leg, whether John Smith mm-hmm. hit it, whether Henry Cejudo hit it, whether you hit it, it doesn't matter who's hitting the single leg. It's a single leg. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference because there's so many different angles and so many different vectors that jujitsu has wrestling is the same shot. Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's a good, a good point. There's a lot. It's like, um, I don't know. Solving a Rubik's cube versus solving like uh, it sounds terrible to say it's chess versus checkers, and I'm a wrestler, but it's know, it's, I, it's I was it's, trying it's, to avoid that. <laughs> but jujitsu is a lot more slower paced. Like it's it's understanding the movements and understanding the pace of the game and understanding how to flow and wrestling. Like there's a lot of really good wrestlers that they get that I mean, that get that good off of physicality. They're not even that good of a technician. Awesome. And that's the difference between the two sports in my mind. But I think that creates a negative to go back to full circle to the beginning point. I think that makes a negative aspect when trying to teach kids how to do wrestling because they don't have the attention span to hit the shots over and over and over again. They want to go, they want to play the game at the end, or they want to go after submissions, or they want to try to, they want to try to go too fast and they're, they're not willing to learn and they're not willing to do the monotonous task that is hitting a double leg a hundred times in a practice. Yeah. And I think also it applies up, up the stream to like MMA and in the highest level too. Like that slow playing jujitsu style does not work when you're getting hit in the face. Like no straight up. Right. Like I, um, uh, when I go to MMA wrestling or whatever, like I learned very quickly in MMA wrestling, it doesn't matter what position you're in. You do not want to be on bottom. No. Like, <laughs> you know, even if you get under like in wrestling, I would get underneath in a front head and like somebody has a front headlock on me. I feel comfortable. Like I can finish the shot from there. I got multiple options. I can like get one of my up, favorite positions to be in in wrestling. <laughs> if I get in that in MMA wrestling, it's not, you're fucked, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Guillotines are coming. Somebody's going to, you know, pepper you with shots or get around or, or something. It's just not a good position to be. So, um, yeah, that slow play does not work when there's punches raining down on you as well. No, not at all. And that's, that's also something that I see with boxers. Boxers are a little bit, you ever notice, like, I love watching Calvin Cater, right? I mean, everybody knows this. I've said it on here multiple times, One of my favorite fighters to watch. And I can almost bet that he just throws when he was learning boxing, his boxing is so crisp. His boxing is so technically proficient that he probably just kept throwing jabs at the bag over and over and over again, the same way wrestlers hit singles over and over and over again. And that's why he's getting, he got so technically proficient because he went through the mundane tasks. Compare that with, again, I don't know, I'm not from the striking world, but compare that with a multifactorial sport, kind of like uh, karate. I would argue that boxing is probably a lot more mundane than karate is. Wouldn't you, would you agree with all the different kicking techniques with all the different, and again, I'm, I'm a rookie, but trying to compare the two together, the striking and the grappling realms, the thing that has less variables is typically the one that's going to be more boring. Boxing has less variables than karate, or we'll even fuck it. Let's say Muay Thai because there's elbows and knees then. So there's way more variables there. So boxing has less variables than Muay Thai. For the most part, boxing is going to be more boring when training because there are less variables, correct? Yeah. So when we have those boring mundane variables, who, what are the two sports going into MMA? They're like those motherfuckers. You talk about the Mexican boxers and you talk about wrestlers, right? Yeah. For the most part, those are the tough motherfuckers that you don't want to see in the cage because they're not going to break. They're going to come at you and they're going to be tough and they're going to grind. Well, I don't know. It kind of comes into like, even that like Bruce Lee quote, like 
I don't fear somebody that's practiced a thousand different kicks. I fear the person that's done one kick a thousand times. Yeah. You know, like that's yeah. the that's the truth of it. And like, I don't know, I think boxing and wrestling culture are just a little like tougher cultures too. And like again, being somewhat ignorant to the rest of the disciplines, like that's not where I came up. But um you're going to wrestler, you know you better be ready to go through some shit. Right. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> that's a different that's a different mindset. Then, uh, well, you're going to uh, go through some shit just to get to the tournament because yeah, you're a, right. like, cause you're a 12 year old cutting 10 pounds to make weight. <laughs> yeah. Personal Nonsense, stories. By Nonsense by the way. Yeah. yeah. And then you go through hell when you get to the match. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think drilling is important, but I also think you got to open it up and teach people how to drill, teach the pace of drilling, teach the variability of drilling. Like, that's the other thing. Like, I feel like when people, what they connotate with drilling is like, okay, I'm going to let you hit a single and then we'll get up and reset. And now you're going to let me hit a single and then we'll get up and reset. And then now I'm going to hit a single and then we'll let each other up. Like that's not no. the end game of drilling. Drilling is no. a, a lot more flow esque like that. Like you have to drill multiple things, put them together. Um, your partner's going to give you two or three different looks. There's different options off of that look. And then your partner has to work on his get up to get back up and then work into his shot, which you're defending in like a 50 to 60% mentality and giving him one option. So I think smart drilling is a lot more of a skill that people need to uh, acquire and practice than people make it out to be. Like when, when we say the word drill, I think it's almost like an injustice to, um, what's actually going on. And, and you learn this in wrestling. Like this is one of wrestling's probably biggest strong suits. Like you learn how to drill. Um, whereas I don't know if that's super common in other gyms. Well, I think it's because wrestling's culture, we go live so much yeah. like live wrestling. That is the cool thing, even though it absolutely sucks. <laughs> the cool thing about wrestling is that like striking, how many times are you actually going to go full out striking with, another individual once a week, maybe if that realistically, you're always going to be operating at like 75 to 85% because you don't want to hurt your teammate. Then we get to jujitsu. You can go relatively balls to the wall, but you're never really trying to hurt your teammates unless you're like, you're not trying to hurt somebody while you're at practice, right? Right. Wrestling, even though there's a risk of injury, the whole point isn't to injure the person in front of you. You can physically dominating them. Yes, but I'm not trying to injure them. So we can legitimately do hard ass live wrestling every single day if you wanted to and you get more so many more competition quote unquote competition reps because the difference between jujitsu in the room versus jujitsu in a tournament is jujitsu in a tournament you can put somebody out i'm snapping their neck yeah Yeah. arm if i can please don't say you're snapping their neck snapping their arm if i can (laughs) right or in a fight you're doing that as well but you're not doing that to your teammates in the in the room Right. You don't have that same mentality where you're like going in there to compete. You mean the amount of times that I've made my teammates cry and, and my teammates have made me question if I should do this sport before is extremely high cry. Yeah. I didn't say it. Your words, not mine. (laughs) Didn't happen. Um, But it's, it's extremely high. And those are some of my best friends in the world, but we can go after them mentally the same way we can go after them physically in wrestling. In other sports, you can't go after you. It has to be a mental battle and be like, oh, I, I got you there. Like p- touch sparring in, in uh, kickboxing. I see it all the time. They pull their kick. They don't go through as they should. You're not trying to hurt your teammate. You're like, aha, I got you there. But you don't actually get the full rep of the 
the impact to get what it feels like. Guess what? In wrestling, a double leg feels like a double leg feels like a double leg. If I get hit with some hips, that's going to suck no matter what. Yeah. Yep. Been there too much. Sorry. I'm reminiscing. I know. I was, as I said that, I was thinking about that and I'm thinking about, oh, shit. <laughs> that hit home. <laughs> Man, you feel like such a bitch when you get owned in a wrestling room. Like, yes. Yeah. You get physically taxed out of gas and then you get technically gassed because you can't keep up and then you just get your head pushed in the mat and somebody's standing over you. Dude, that's why I started lifting again. Well, I think I said it a couple weeks ago. I started the building a fighter program. But I started lifting again and doing some cardio because I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm way too tired. I'm such, (laughs) I am way better than I'm actually giving effort in the room. And it's because I don't work out anymore. Or that's the the thing too. Like, goddamn, like, I'm just tired. I like, I'm I'm getting owned and people are going to think I suck because I'm tired. But right. No, but I mean, uh, that is the cool part about my style where I didn't do a whole bunch. So I'm extremely efficient. I'm the opposite. I got to create a lot. (laughs) Yes. But it's just, I just got to get my, got to get that cardio back. So I don't look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So. And I don't want to do a jujitsu tournament. Probably. I'll probably do it in six months. Yeah. You're going to do six months of training. Yeah. I think so. Have you jumped on jujitsu? I know you were going to do that after. You I, no, I haven't. I've been, I've been slammed. And then I got another wedding this weekend. I made you do four jujitsu classes this week. Proud of myself. Nice. That's, yeah, Dude, that's, that's awesome. That's decent. Amount. What's some cool shit that you've listened or that you learned this week? What Scotty um, teach you? Does Scott, does Scotty coach classes you go to? He does. He doesn't coach all of them. Uh, Shout out to he, Scotty Jiu-Jitsu. I wish he coached more. Shout out to Scotty Jiu-Jitsu. Come to the 5.30 p.m. classes. He's got a baby at home, so he runs pretty much the morning until 3 or 4 in the kids' class, and he goes home. But um, I learned a lot about you know chasing a Kimura you know, and, and using it to transition and sweep versus just trying to finish the Kimura. Right? Mm-hmm. I think it's so util. Um, it's got so much utility to it, both on the ground and getting off the cage. We've seen that happen a ton, but mm-hmm. use it to its whole end, not just to submit. Um, Dude, that's actually that's that's something that I learned from Santino. Actually, it's mm-hmm. uh, not after Kimura, but same can be or sorry, same thing can be said about heel hooks. Yeah, where yeah, he, he that's what Santino yeah. talks about all the time. Where he's like, "Why are we like the amount of times that a heel hook actually gets finished in the UFC is minimally? Unless you're a heel hook specialist, you're probably not going to finish a heel hook in the UFC." Yeah, one hundred percent. So why are we looking for the submission in that position? Why aren't we just using the heel hook to get up? Why aren't we using that to sweep? Why aren't we using that to get back to the feet? Because if you're getting heel hooked, guess what? You're uh, if if you're not that good in that position, you're probably a striker, right? Right. So they're going to try to heel hook a striker. Guess what? Use that position. Use it to sweep. Boom. You're up. You're good. Back to go. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was one of the biggest kind of take home points. Um, and then, man, just to like. I don't know, harp on wrestling, but like chain wrestling, like even if you just apply that to <laughs> jujitsu is so, so dominant. Like it makes you so much better. <laughs> I know. Right. Like if I can tie my, you know, Kimura attempt to a triangle to, um, taking the back and runic choke, like mm-hmm. if you, the more you can tie threats together, the better you're going to be in. And even it was on display when I was watching sparring, you know, we had a wrestler who's not fully transitioned to MMA um still got a pretty raw mma talent but really good wrestler versus like a jujitsu specialist the wrestler just kept chain wrestling and taking him down constantly and the mm-hmm. ju- it's not like the jujitsu player couldn't really get up but it's that the wrestler was looking for the next thing before the jujitsu player thought about it 
right? Yep. So it's that like chain mentality, which takes a lot of uh, good shape to attack. So, well, and that actually, fuck, that's a pretty full circle thing right there that we're talking about. That goes back to what we were talking about with uh, kids jujitsu versus um, uh, versus kids wrestling. Yeah, and teaching one way or the other. Wrestlers just you learn chain wrestling at an early age, but what is at, at its core, what is chain wrestling? It's not just will to move forward. It's not just will to work. It's being able to make a split second decision mm-hmm. like this, yeah. understanding what's next, not what's here. Yeah. And, and like, the only way to, to see two or three steps in advance. Right. And the only way to know what's next is to be so good at what's here that you can look ahead. Yeah. The only way to be that forward thinking is to have that high level of technical proficiency to know you don't need to spend that much effort on what's going on. I can think two moves ahead. Yeah, man. It's crazy. The advantage, like when I was interning at the UFC, I was wrestling with Clint Wattenberg and he, we, we were wrestling because everybody wants to roll jujitsu and that's the, the cool recreational thing to do, but he's like, God, it feels good just to wrestle again. Right. And, you know, this was a, <laughs> a wrestling coach at Cornell and, and forward like that. And, you know, one of the biggest things, like he was beating my ass, like point blank, but I was like, <laughs> asked him, I was like, what's the difference between a D three wrestler and D one wrestler? Like what, what is the biggest thing that stands out? The two word answer. He said chain wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. So, Damn. But, oh, Clinton. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a full circle deal right there. Heck yeah. Well, that's a freestyle episode for y'all. If you got to get in touch with us, all of our information is in the show notes. Please like, share, subscribe, do all the cool stuff that becomes, or that allows us to become friends with your friends. Um, if you're on Apple podcasts, please hit us up with that rating. That's going to boost our SEO and move us forward. Like we say, every podcast, the website is up. If you are listening and you want to get a program built for you, we have that option. If you're a coach and want your team to be on some top tier programming, we have that option for in camp and out of camp, as well as we have preset options for fighters looking in the out of camp phase. So hit us up at buildingafighter.com. That's where all those options are, or you can reach out to us on Instagram, like we aforementioned, and then we'd be able to assist you and move you forward. As always, it's Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Friedman, and we are out. Bye.